Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, V for Vampire. This is very old wine. I hope you will like it. Aren't you drinking? I never drink. Why? Many of you may recognize that audio clip from the 1931 movie Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi. Vampires have a treasured place in our culture. From Bela to Buffy, we have been fascinated, often titillated, by the thoughts of the undead and their thirst for blood. Fiction authors have written volumes using vampires as part of their plot lines. Anne Rice has made a fortune focusing on the erotica angle. Unfortunately, although the exploits of the undead are fiction, murders by deranged individuals that kill and drink the blood or eat the flesh of the innocent are all too real. Richard Trenton Chase is one such deranged individual. Listen in as I interview Kevin M. Sullivan and hear the all-too-true tale of a real-life vampire. Warning, this podcast contains very disturbing details. Today I'm speaking with Kevin M. Sullivan, who has uh, written a, a fascinating book uh, called Vampire, The Richard Chase Murders, uh, amongst other books that we'll also talk about. But right now we're going to sort of focus on that. Welcome, Kevin. Hi, Jim. How's things going today? Good, good. Um, I, I've done a few of these, as I've said, and each one has mm -hmm. its own character. And mm -hmm. one of the things about this one, and of course, I have to check it on my podcast box when I publish, right. that this one is, um, how should we say, a little bit disturbing, maybe a lot disturbing. It is. It is. And uh, so we'll, of course, talk about that. So why don't you lead us off with the, uh, the plot line? Uh, Chase is an interesting figure. He is a, he's a California killer. And... Uh, uh, you know, he shares some similarities with, with other killers like that. Chase doesn't get the kind of recognition that, like a Richard Ramirez does or someone like that. Chase, um, he grew up in Sacramento. His parents had problems, uh, some marital problems. It appears from the record that his mother had both emotional and perhaps mental issues as well because of some of the things that she had been uh, coming against her husband with and 
things that were just not uh, not normal. And um, Chase grew up in, in the home. And of course, he was a baby boomer. And uh, he also has a sister. And they, you know, you might say they were the all-American family, except for the problems that the parents had. And uh, Chase would later be described as a paranoid schizophrenic. And what happens with people, they usually don't enter into that stage of psychosis until they're in their 18, 19, 20 years old. I don't know whether the experts know why that is, but it's just true. It doesn't usually surface when they're a child. So in many respects, Chase's childhood appears normal. But he started becoming strange in high school. And, um, you know, nobody suspected him of one day morphing into what he became. And I know I've written a lot about Ted Bundy, and I've made a comparison with Chase and Bundy. And if you look at the two killers, there is a great difference in one area. Both men committed very evil acts. However, they were different in some ways. Bundy knew who he was. Bundy understood what he was. And Bundy did not have any flights from reality. Uh, Chase, on the other hand, did. And Chase was, even after he was captured, he was deemed deeply mentally ill, but not legally insane. Just to give you an example, Chase believed that his blood was drying up. He believed that a pulmonary artery had been removed from him. And the reason why Chase started drinking blood, first with animals and then with humans, had to do with uh, his belief that in some way, uh, he needed to replenish his blood because it was turning to powder. So we know he was deeply mentally ill. Now, most people, when they see somebody like that, and again, Bundy wasn't like that. I, we, we would use terminolo terminology for both men that they're crazy. Well, they're just crazy. Ted Bundy's crazy for wanting to slaughter women, have sex with their dead bodies, cut off their heads, have sex with the heads. Okay, we would say he's crazy, but he's not crazy in the sense of not knowing what he's doing. He knew what he was doing. Chase, even though you can look at Chase and he was dirty, you know, he, he reeked of mental illness. But I asked the prosecutor in the case, in the uh, Richard Chase case, I said, look, if he was that mentally ill, how come you were able to convict him of these murders in the traditional sense and sentence him to death. He said, because, he said, I'll explain this to you. I'll, I'll never for, forget the day he did this. He said, listen, Chase, although deeply mentally ill, he knew what he was doing. He sought to conceal his actions. And when he began talking to me about this and the difference between insanity and legal insanity, because they had no problem with him being mentally ill. But he said, when you know what you're doing is wrong, that society condemns it, and you understand that it is uh, something that if you were caught, you're going to be charged with, and, and, and you're going to be tried in court. And Chase knew this, and this is why he tried to escape detection for so long. And I remember when the prosecutor said this, I said, you know, we had a case here in Louisville. And I said um, about there was this fella who murdered in a really nice part of uh, uh, Louisville. It's St. Matthews. It's like a, a metro area 
this guy murdered his mother and his brother one day. And then what do you do with the bodies? So he dragged the bodies out to the front of the house so that the garbage people could pick them up. Now, he actually did this. And I've seen, I've been over this house. It's, it's a great area of Louisville. But anyway, so people walking by who aren't used to seeing bodies, they would walk by and they would think they're walking their dog. Oh, th those look like mannequins. And it looks like they put ketchup on the mannequins. Or something. That, that's, I guess, what's happened. So one of these people called the cops. A patrolman rolls up, gets out of his car, and immediately sees their bodies. Now, the fellow that did this did not try to hide what he had done, did what he thought was the right thing to do, take him out to the garbage, without question. He could not be tried in a court of law because he was absolutely legally insane. So Chase never fell into that category, although we'd see Chase as, again, you and I would say he's crazy. So that's basically that. But it's a strange case. And when I was doing this case, I had to go out to Sacramento, uh, California, and go through 14 boxes of case files. It took me all day. And um, it was weird because in that, and a lot of times case files will have this, they'll have what's known as real evidence. And in, in, in this real evidence, and you know, we'll get into this more, but he used a 22 caliber uh, Luger style pistol to kill his victims. And, um, you know, they had things in evidence where they had the bullet that killed uh, his first victim, the engineer who worked for the, I think, California Land and Management or something, but got the cup that, that Chase used when he killed the uh, one lady um, and then ended up uh, drinking her blood. And so there was various real evidence within the case file. And there's a strange thing in, in the United States that for some reason, there's a lot of people that live in the more normal areas that don't lock their doors or rural people. People in high crime areas do a lot better with it. But for some reason, a lot of people will not lock their doors, but let a terrible, ghastly murder occur. Everybody was locking their doors. And so I write about that. And it, People were buying guns who didn't have them or they would buy more ammunition. One guy, he couldn't sleep at night. He stayed up at his bay window and he just was looking out to make sure nobody was coming for him. But he said, the prosecutor said, after a time, what happens is people get back into that same pattern and they'll leave their doors unlocked. And I remember when I wrote in Through an Unlocked Door, a chapter on uh, Richard Ramirez from California who committed these murders. Uh, you know, he was the one that was a Satan worshiper and all this. Funny, though, when Ramirez was captured at the end and a whole crowd from this neighborhood had been beating on him, when the patrolman pulled up and got out of the car, instead of talking about Satan, here's the first thing that, that Ramirez said. Thank God you're here. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. He had ditched Satan in that moment and he, and he talked about God. But, but Ramirez took great advantage in going through unlocked doors. And there were a couple of older women in the, that were his victims. And one, one, one uh, lady said, I am not going to be a prisoner in my own home. I refused to lock my doors. Richard Chase would take advantage also of the unlocked door of the unlocked window or now, the unlocked window. Now, he, 
you mentioned the engineer. Um, yes. He, there was a, uh, my memory is there was a, a case that sort of started things rolling and then they sort of backtracked yes. and found him. So let's go to the case yeah. that, that for, for the all intents and purposes, got things started, which was Terry Wallen. So take, yeah. us, th take us through that day. Yeah, Teresa Wallen. She was, um, you know, they were young. He, she was married to David Wallen. She was actually pregnant. And um, she worked for the state. And on that day, she, it was just a chance and circumstance. She, that was her day off. It, it's in the morning. She's cleaning the house. She does not have her front door locked. They have a German Shepherd as well. Chase came out of the market, went down. Uh, a little bit on the other side of the market, crossed over to that first street, took a left. But instead of like being a normal person and walking down the sidewalk, he didn't do that. He cut across somebody's front yard. And one of these, it was really a couple of yards. And one of the people in there, he got up and looked because it was so weird to see just somebody walking on their grass, maybe near the window. It was just weird. Well, he goes down and again, he was going to try so he comes in the front door and he's ready to go. He's already got uh, the Luger racked. It was a semi-auto pistol and it was racked just like a, what you do with a nine millimeter Luger. And she was carrying garbage, as I recall, through the house. She's gonna take this trash out or whatever. She sees him coming through, he points the gun at her. She throws up her hand, which is a very human response, trying to stop it. And uh, he fires once, I think the bullet skimmed like her arm, the next one went through, I think, her hand and into her head, and then he shot her again. Now, uh, I need to say, too, that Chase had had some girlfriends prior to the beginning of these murders, but like his, he had one girlfriend, and she really liked him. This was before he was uh, so really psych psychotic, but he had a problem with impotency and he couldn't maintain an erection. Well, it was all psychological. We don't know why, but it was psychological because he had nothing physically wrong with him because when he started sexually, sexually assaulting these dead women, uh, he had no problem maintaining an erection. And, um, but what he did with Wallen, so he killed her and he dragged her into the bedroom and then kind of like in Jack the Ripper style, he got a knife and he started cutting her and doing things to her and uh, left a ghastly scene. And of course, he also, you know, raped her post-mortem. But uh, that, in fact, T Teresa Wallen is the one that um, uh, he drank her blood. And then there's a picture that the detectives took, and I have this in the book, where it shows the cup that, that Chase drank and then kind of crumpled in his hand and then left it on the floor. He'd also gotten a pail and to kind of like catch the blood and then dipped it, dipped that cup, it was a yogurt cup, into the pail. And, uh, you know, so David Wallen, who was coming home, he was actually training another fella that was gonna take over his job. And so they stopped and had a couple beers. And I think he got home around, I don't know, around six, 6.30. But as he entered the front door, you know, he put the key in, but he could, but the door opened and he couldn't, he wasn't sure if it was unlocked, but he went in, 
his dog was acting really weird. And of course, he went through the house looking for his wife. And uh, there's a picture of, of her. I, I got to see all the photographs. They said they wouldn't release them for publication. I said, I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to publish these. I'll use regular crime scene photos, but I don't need to publish those. But the one of Wallen somehow years ago got out and you can find that on the internet. And, but when David saw his wife, he backed out of the room and went out the front door and ran to a neighbor's house and was able to, they were able to call the police. I think the neighbor might've called the cops for him. And he also called his father. He saw his brother and father pull up maybe moments before the police got there. And of course, when this happened, and if you, if you think about it, this all happened within about two months time when he shot the engineer that we haven't really talked about yet, but the guy was carrying in groceries. There was nothing diabolical about that murder. Uh, there was no cutting up of a victim. It was a man anyway. And police, you know, I remember Bill Roberts told me about that first murder. He said, it looked like something that might be like a drive-by from might happen in LA. But he said, we never had anything like that. So it was just a routine murder. And then some detectives began to think that, well, maybe somebody was just shooting a gun and didn't mean to hit this guy. But later they would be able to trace that murder back. So Teresa Wallen was the first diabolical murder. And um, I remember I asked the prosecutor, I said, what, whatever happened to David? Did he marry again? He said, yeah. I said, he have some kids? He said, yeah. So well, that's good. That's good. Because, you know, in a sense, you don't ever get over those horrific events. But when you can repair yourself to the degree where you can go on and, and try to create another life, that's always a good thing. The detectives that showed up to the Wallen murder, first there was patrol officers from the sheriff's department. But when the, when, when the homicide guys got there, they, they knew they were dealing with something very different because this is not a robbery gone wrong. This is not even a, let's say something happened, you have a strangulation and a, and a murder. This is something where somebody took the time, again, I will say it, in Jack the Ripper style, to carve this woman up. And with the next woman he does, he does even some more bizarre things. But yeah, it was a horrific murder. And people that lived through this time in Sacramento, it was just it's just one of those defining moments. Now, how uh, long after the uh, Terry Wallen uh, killing was the next, I, I think the next one was more, uh, was multiple? Yeah, it was. And I don't think it was that long. And I want to tell you this too. I think the detective's name was Clark. He had seen a lot. It's not like he was a rookie. He was a seasoned homicide investigator. But that Teresa Wallen uh, crime scene really disturbed this guy. Well, Clark had to show up at the next crime scene, and that was the woman and um, a fellow that was there with her, M Meredith. A guy named Meredith was there, and... Um, you know, there was a son there and she was watching her baby, uh, a family member's, you know, baby was there that morning in a neighborhood that was right next to 
another complex. You got to remember when you're talking about these murders in Sacramento, these are normal areas. This isn't in any kind of areas that's 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 horrendous. Again, Chase had entered one morning. It was really interesting because there was a lady across the street, and she had called that morning and said, "Can the the boy go with them up to like the mountains? They're going to do some skiing." She said, "Sure," but he had to go get some shoes. So Mr. Meredith had driven the boy to purchase the shoes. While they're gone, Chase apparently had already gone in through an unlocked door and murdered the woman and had murdered the baby. And then when the boy came back with Mr. Meredith, they were soon killed too. Now, one of the forensic people had, and this is weird because Chase didn't have any medical training at all, but just like in the case of Jack the Ripper, where they said, who's ever carving these women up, they're skilled. They know what they're doing. Well, Chase didn't have any training whatsoever. And yet he was removing parts of their body. He was cutting them a certain way. And they said, whoever this is, this person knows what he's doing. And I'll never forget it. For some reason, it's just diabolical nature of this stuff. He had taken this woman's eye and pulled it out of the socket. And I've covered cases where they do that. They cut off heads or they position the body, a woman's body and a very sexually suggestive thing, all for the detectives. One case I wrote about Danny Rowling in Florida, he killed this one woman and pulled a shelf over and put the head on the shelf so that when the police came in there, the first thing they'd see is that head. And then on the bed was a body, headless body, where she's sitting on the end of the bed. So he staged all that. He wanted that, that shock effect. And um, so Clark had to show up with some other detectives with this. And, and they said later, they said when they, when they not, every, not all the homicide detectives got there at the same time. And one guy came through there and they had to park down the street and they had blocked off the roads and everything. And they said Clark was ashen. He was so disturbed by it. And, um, but in any event, it was just a terrible, terrible scene. Of course, now, the chief of homicide uh, uh, detectives, you know, Ray Biondi, uh, and I asked Ray if he wanted to contribute to the book. He didn't want to. He, he you know, he wrote his own book with, uh, with a guy named Hecox, and they, you know, but he didn't, but, uh, the, but the other guys, you yeah, know, they, they were fine to work with me. And, um, but beyond he told his people he said listen whoever is doing this is not going to stop these murders i mean really what what they were looking at it was a race against time that you know this all happened within a matter of a couple months or less and um keep in mind that uh chase was doing other strange things and in fact the baby the baby that he had taken that um that the woman was watching, he had fired he had fired a bullet, I think, into the baby's head. But he took this is how deeply mentally ill he was. They discovered once they captured him and went in there, they could never they couldn't find the child for a long time, which was strange. But he had put the child in a Mac fries box and dumped it. Chase had taken the baby, and um, had um, 
cut the skull open and had been eating the brains. And they found brain material on the plate and uh, on like a, and his room, just a mess. He had fired some shots into the walls. He had been killing dogs as well. You know, he started with birds and he'd kill these birds and then he, you know, drank their blood and whatever. And he, he, just crazy stuff. He injected himself once with the blood from rabbits and he nearly killed himself. Like in the uh, Unabomber case where uh, after years and years in that case, the big break came uh, from an unusual source. The brother of the Unabomber uh, recognized uh, his brother's writings when his manifesto was um, published. And in this case, um, the luckily did not go on as long as the Unabomber, uh, but the break came from kind of an unusual identification, uh, didn't it? Chase ran into a lady that he used to go to school with. And he came up to her and she said later, she said he had encrusted stuff on his mouth. You know, he's dirty. Take one look at somebody like this. You know that they're, that they're mentally off. You know it. So they exchange a few words inside of this little market, which again is right behind where Teresa Wallen lived. And all she wants to do is get away from this guy. And so she finally is able to exchange a few words, get in the car, and he still doesn't want her to leave. And she pulls away and she leaves. Well, she informed the police from, you know, she came home and told her father. And uh, soon the police were able to find out about this guy. And again, these are one of these things that often happens in an investigation and it takes somebody who knows them and sees something and says, you know, this may not mean anything, but this happened. And she, you know, she was aware that about Wallen, uh, that, that it was, it, it was at the same time that she had seen Chase. And so Roberts and two others started working this case with Chase and Bill Roberts rode over with me to uh, Chase's apartment. And um, if you look at the location, you know, he very close to where he had uh, committed the Meredith murder and those murders and not too far from Teresa Wall. It happened in a small geographic area. And, um, but one of the detectives said that when they convinced, Chase wouldn't come out of his apartment. So when he was convinced they left, he had, gotten some stuff together and he had the the 22 Luger pistol with him he came out of the apartment and then these guys just charged him and one of them tackled him and the one the one investigator said I was already going to I had already determined that if he resisted I was going to just shoot him and sure enough he resisted and the three guys are trying to get a hold of this guy he said I found out then I'm not a killer I mean, he, he, he would have killed him if it was necessary, but he thought, I'm just not going to kill this guy if I don't have to, which is good if you can capture him. You know, his mental illness was well known from the start. And I remember there was something funny that he said he didn't mean to make a play. They said, what are you thinking about right now? This is during an interrogation. He said, just normal things. He said, well, what? He said, well, like a jumbo jetliner exploding. It's the last thing that normal people think about. 
Well, he had a whole, he had a whole, I mean, we were, we focus obviously on, on the, the uh, driving forces in the, in the insanity of what the right. crimes were, but yes, yes, in interviews and even after he was in prison, I mean, he was uh, UFOs and, oh, yeah. and, and the Nazis were coming and he was trying uh-huh. to convince people that he was a Jew and yeah. which he wasn't and that the Nazis right. were. So, it, you know, the blood thing was one thing that his blood was drying up and turning to powder. But he, oh, yeah. he didn't he wasn't limited to just that. He sort of had the yeah. whole uh, oh, the whole menu, there. the whole menu of nutness. He used to stand on his head helping to get the blood to run back. And I think his, his grandmother said at one point he was put, putting like what lemons or oranges on his head as if that was going to help him. But um, yeah. And yet, but and yet as you yeah. said, the prosecution was successful. Um, yes. I'm assuming the defense that was put on, not you got the wrong guy, but just yeah. what, you know, the prosecution's doing our job for us with pictures and, and recounting yes. and whatever. They're, yes. they're just going to say, you know, uh, you know, uh, he needs to go to the wacky bin, but it was, it was guilty right. what murder one, right? Oh, I think capital, charged, I mean, capital murder must it, have been. It was capital murder. Capital murder. Uh, his attorney's dead now, but when I was researching the book, uh, his name was uh, Salome. I was able to talk to him. He was very lucid. He was an older guy then, but he, and then he died a few years after publication. But he said, look, he said, there was no way that we were going to get him. He was going to be convicted of something, but there's no way he was going to get out of this. There was the forensic evidence. He had a gun, he just, everything. But he said the, his best defense was the insanity defense. If we could just get the jury to believe that he was legally insane. But the prosecute, and it was so interesting because when I was there in 2012, the prosecutor who had tried um, Chase was now like the lead prosecutor. He was still, he had not yet retired. So I was getting this directly from him. And, but they presented a really good case. And when you look at uh, U.S. law, it is pretty clear that, like in the case of you dragging bodies out because you got to throw them away, you don't know what you're doing. That is truly legally insane. You will not be charged. Here in Kentucky, we've had some strange things happen. We've had people that have been the problem with even legally insane is that sometimes these killers will get off. And then years later, if they are no longer judged to be insane, they'll be turned loose into society again. And one of the fellows that this happened to was a guy I wrote about in Kentucky bloodbath, his name is Todd Ice. And he had cut the throat of a little girl and tried to kill the mother in a trailer in a rural part of Kentucky. And Ice had a like 140 something IQ. And um, he first got the death penalty and then that was overturned later. And, and then they, he, he, you know, he was declared insane. And you know, uh, uh, under law, if you can't, if you're denied a speedy trial, even if it's for a mental illness and you, they can't get you. After a while, that's going to be tossed out. And so um, Todd Ice had these attorneys later on who almost became friends with him and thought that he was fine, he could be released again. And so he was going to be released. And he wrote him a letter. He said, you, you have no idea what I have had to go through to make sure I don't cut the throats of little girls any longer. I should have never been put on the street. This made national news after he was released because they released him into, I believe it was 
Cincinnati, right across the river from Kentucky, northern Kentucky. And when this came out, um, people were aghast that he was walking around their streets. And what they did was they, Kentucky had to take him back, put him in hiding again, and then release him somewhere else later. On the, he actually died on his 50th birthday uh, of a heart attack, and everybody breathed a sigh of relief. But um, when Chase earlier in his life got on antipsychotic you know, medication, he did better. But the mother told him to stop taking that because it made him like a zombie and she didn't like it. And then, of course, the uh, you know, delusions and things like that increased. So whether one believes that Chase should have gotten the death penalty or been ruled criminally insane and kept locked up for the rest of his life, um, the death penalty was never um, executed, if you will. Uh, he died in prison. Um, tell us the details. He was on death row. Most people believe, and I want to say this because I'm sure the audience would, would like to hear it. Most people believe that Chase killed himself intentionally. I, I, I really thought so as well. The prosecutor said an interesting thing to me about that. He said, you know, Chase was always concerned about his body and he had been cheeking his meds. He said, do you know what that is? I said, I, I can assume he's not swallowing them. He said, that's correct. He'd been cheeking his meds and saving them up. He said, most people have a tendency to think he purposely killed himself. He said, that could be. He said, but because of what we know about Chase, more likely he probably was going to take it in one massive dose to really cure himself this time. So I laughed and I said to the prosecutor, well, he did succeed in curing himself, just not in the way he intended. Now, I um, did not mention this in the beginning, but in addition to being a very prolific writer of great literature, interesting literature, you are also an ordained minister, are you not? I am, and I still, I still, do, I still pastor a small church. I have a rather busy counseling service as well. And so a lot of people, the people that know me, they laugh about it, but a lot of people don't it's not it's not usual to find a ordained minister especially a practicing one who also has another foot in in true crime i've written a couple of books on history on george armstrong custer but i'm prim primarily a true crime writer so yes i have my feet in both worlds and usually people say what well, why do you do that and i said well i got an interest there my first true crime book the first one i have the first adult book i ever read was a book off my father's shelf called The World's Worst Murders by Charles Franklin. I pulled that off his uh, shelf when I was 10 years old. He was an attorney at a big library. And I read this book and I was fascinated by it. And then I went, you know, my, my father was a World War II veteran. His brother had been killed in World War II. His uncle had been killed in World War II. So I'd hear all those stories. So I got to reading about that. And after I read my first book as a 10 year old an adult book i never went back to kids books except in school when i had to so uh yeah but it did the interest was there as a vocation though i went into the ministry now just one another quick question here before we wrap up and that's yep. um you're talking about bundy did you ever get to meet him or no I never got to meet bundy but i ended up working and on the next time we do a show 
We will. I'll tell you exactly how this happened. It dropped in my lap. Good. I've had Ted Bundy's murder kit in my home in 2005, took pictures of it, got the bug to write about this guy, wrote an article about that for a, uh, a weekly newspaper mm -hmm. called Snitch. And uh, yeah, so and I worked with all the main detectives. I worked with Bundy's friends, cool. everybody, everybody but Bundy. Well, okay. this has been a fascinating uh, interview, a fascinating chat, uh, not only just because of uh, the subject matter of the book Vampire, the Richard Chase Murders, written by Kevin M. Sullivan, but I, all my, my listeners are getting a little tease because I certainly will be back to, uh, to Kevin to talk about uh, a book that he's more famous for, his uh, Ted Bundy book, and that's got a long subtitle, so give it to me. Yes. It's uh, The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History. Okay. And I've, I've done companion volumes since then with other new information. And uh, obviously available on Amazon, uh, yes. Barnes & Noble, your local library. Right. Uh, right. Do, you have a, do you have a website, Kevin, or just Facebook, or what have you got? What do you want well, people here, to contact you if they want to? Yeah, I, I have various publishers, but primarily over the last few years, I, I write primarily for Wild Blue Press. So if you go to wildbluepress.com, you can go to the authors, you can click on, you can find me, Kevin Sullivan, and they have a lot of archives, blogs that I have. So that, and if you want to see all the books I've written, you can also go to my author page on, on, on Amazon. Yep, excellent. That's where I sort of got some more information uh, about. Uh, Great. Well, Kevin, this has been fantastic. So I will not Thank say you. goodbye. I will say au revoir till we meet exactly. again. Exactly. Au revoir uh, is, is, is the right way to do it. We, uh, we my, will talk my, again. <laughs> we will talk again. Again, thanks so much. Thank you. And so that's our wrap on another episode of Murder Most Foul. In closing, before I let you go, uh, I'd like to just leave you with a quote for all you folks out there who are into true crime like I am. And it comes from Frederick Nietzsche. And I've adjusted a little bit for the circumstances, but it goes something like, whoever investigates monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. When you look into an abyss, the abyss also looks into you. So if I haven't frightened you away, I, I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll check out uh, past episodes uh, available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Also tell your friends. And if you have any comments you'd like to leave for me, you can do that via my email. And the best way to do that is, is off of the podcast website which is www.murdermostfoul.com. So until next time, please stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.